Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who's no stranger to the Jew 3 Project. He's been on here before, Dr. David Daniels. Welcome, Dr. Daniels. Good uh, morning. Uh, I, maybe I shouldn't say that. Good day. <laughs> great to be out <laughs> with you. <laughs> I'm excited to have you back on um, our episode with you um, on um, the Reformation and the African contributions to that um, is still uh, one of our most watched episodes. Uh, people really, that was really enlightening for a lot of people to hear about Michael the Deacon and his impact on Luther and the research you're doing on that. So thank you for your work um, and how it's helping. Well, I'm just glad that you were very interested and glad the response that it's getting. And I'm hoping that more and more people will look at um, that facet, because again, um, Africans are in Europe in the 16th century who are Christian, and we need to find a way of, of both broadcasting that and then studying it. Yes, yes. So um, for those who didn't watch the previous episode, just give them just a little bit of, about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is, is uh, Dr. David Daniels. I'm the Henry Winters Luce Professor of World Christianity at McCormick Theological Seminary, and I belong to the Church of God in Christ. Uh, my um, areas of research um, is in world Christianity, and one of the things that I've been focusing on is the presence of Africans um, within the Black Atlantic world in particular in the uh, 16th century and 17th century, and then going forward. One of the things I want to push the story back, and, and one of the rubrics that I use is how do we talk about Christianity among Africans before the rise of modern racism? And so therefore, the 16th and 17th century are very key to be able to provide us that contrast. A lot of our discussions is about the presence of Africans who are Christians during modern racism. And therefore, I think modern racism both skews the way um, they are looked at and skews the context in which they have to function. Mm -hmm. And yes, that's so important and so vital uh, for the work uh, that that G3 is doing is 
as well that we push people further back in time. Um, one of the pushbacks we've we've received, um, and we mentioned this a little bit in the last episode, is that um, many people will critique and say, okay, you're pointing to Augustine, you're pointing to Athanasius, you're pointing to Tertullian um, origin. There's North African church fathers. Um, the slaves come from West Africa. Um, so they see a little bit of disconnect there um, when it's talking about uh, Christianity in Africa before the transatlantic slave trade. Um, what? How do you respond to that um, critique? Well, first of all, um, there's an element of truth of, of what kind of historical connections, what direct impact, in other words, um, what are the consequences to Christianity in West Africa, uh, sorry, Christianity in North Africa um, during the first four or five or six centuries, and then what happens 10 centuries later. Um, therefore, um, part of that gap can be filled in by looking at Africans in Europe in the 16th century and, Afri and afterwards, and then looking at Africans who are Christian within West Africa and then going further down the coast to Central Africa. That therefore, that's the area where the majority of enslaved Africans came from, even though a small percentage come from all the way over uh, towards um, Southeastern Africa, um, where uh, Mozambique and, and Madagascar are. Um, but the majority, the vast majority, uh, comes from that Atlantic coast area. And therefore, by talking about African Christians in that area, one is able to find a direct uh, connection. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things you mentioned is uh, the Congolese Christians. Can you kind of give us a history of 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 their existence and and, um, and how they became Christians? Well, one of the, the amazing stories within the history of Christianity um, that has been really explored uh, probably maybe forty years uh, in a serious way. Um, there's been discussions about this going all the way back to the nineteenth. 18th and even 17th century, um, but, but, but we haven't taken it seriously. And that is um, the conversion of the kingdom of Congo to Christianity. Um, that's a voluntary conversion. Um, kingdom of Congo at that time was not a colony of, of any European country. Um, it is introduced to Christianity from the Portuguese. And the Portuguese um, introduced Christianity um, somewhere around 1491. Um, a little before then, um, the idea was introduced, but there really wasn't a conversion. Um, but what the King of Congo did at that time was say that um, I want to send some of my young men back to your country, meaning in Portugal, to find out not only about this religion that you're telling me about, but about your society. And so he does. And they come back around 1491. The king hears the reports of uh, his Congolese um, um, uh, young men. And that's what he believes. He doesn't necessarily believe the Portuguese. He believes his young men who've been to Portugal um, for over five years, who learned some of the language or learned the language, learned about the faith and whatever. And then he converts. Um, I, I'll, I'll fast forward the story. Um, but that conversion then um, leads to um, the uh, nobility of the Congolese um, entering into Christianity, um, the son of, of this king, the son's name is King Afonso, um, is the one that really institutionalizes the church. And um, he, 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 is, he is treated um, as a peer, as an equal um, to the king of Portugal. Um, the Portuguese at this time is not shaped by modern racism as we know it. Um, and so therefore they're treated as peers. Um, king Afonso 
um, um, sets up an educational system. So by some scholars like John Thornton, by 1520, there's a thousand students enrolled in their educational system uh, there in the, uh, the King, uh, Kingdom of Congo. I believe the majority is probably around the capital, but again, it's within the, the kingdom. It, it's co-ed, boys and girls are attending the school. And one of the teachers is uh, one of the King's sisters. So therefore nobility is, is all over the place. Um, and so literacy is there. Um, understanding the Christian doctrine is there. Um, learning um, at least uh, Portuguese and maybe Latin, in addition to knowing Kikongo, which was the local language or the, the language of the, of the Congolese in that area. Um, and then he begins to move ahead to having priests um, who are from Congolese um, uh, getting consecrated or ordained. Uh, he also advocates for a bishop who is of Congolese descent. Uh, the Pope ends up agreeing, happens to be one of his sons, uh, uh, Bishop Enrique. Um, so, so, so he's setting up the system. And, and therefore, uh, you, you have actually the um, uh, creation of a Christian community within the Congo with institutional structures. There are, there's this bishop um, who, who has some connection there. There are priests, there are catechists, there are teachers, um, uh, and, 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 and there are people going to mass uh, every day. Um, uh, by, by 1590, uh, the, one of the successors of King Afonso is able to have uh, uh, the capital, uh, what he calls San Salvador or Mbanza, which was his Congo name, um, get, get established as a, a see, as an Episcopal see, as a place uh, for a cathedral. Um, and so therefore, cathedral then becomes a key. Because again, the idea of the Congolese is that we are a fully developed Christian uh, kingdom, empire. And therefore, we need to have all the elements that a Christian empire would have, or sorry, a Christian uh, kingdom would have anywhere in the world. So you have uh, bishops, you have cathedrals, you have chapels, you have priests, you have schools, you have uh, um, uh, teachers, all of that. And that's what they have um, throughout um, this period here. And so, so therefore, um, they, they are laying the framework for that. And because it is not shaped by modern racism, because it is not shaped by colonialism, um, it's a story then um, that needs to be told. Yes. And it's a story that is, is a not, a, that's not a North African story. Uh, which kind of pushes back on on that um, that critique that that is so so helpful. What other yeah. things do you think that? No, no, can, 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 can I also say I'm sorry that yeah. um, <laughs> in, in addition to the Kingdom of Congo, there are also other Africans that are Christians, but they're in areas um, that are divided between those that are also independent. Um, uh, Kingdom of Benin, which is part of uh, modern day uh, Nigeria, Kingdom of Wari, which is also in that same region. Those are independent kingdoms. They, they were not as able to create the infrastructure as the Kingdom of Congo did to the same degree. Um, but, but they still were Christians that were there. And then there are Christians that um, as far north as uh, Cape Verde, um, but Cape Verde is a Portuguese colony. Um, in fact, it becomes part of Portugal. Um, so therefore, it's, it, it is within that colonial structure, but they also develop uh, priests that are African uh, within Cape Verde in this time period, in addition to having lay people. And then uh, off the coast uh, of Central Africa, Santome, there's also um, Christians that are there. Again, it's more in a colonial structure. So, so by the time you get to 1600, which is, again, if you look, one's looking at the slave trade coming to North America, 
That's prior to the slave trade actually coming to North America in any serious way, at least for what becomes United States. You have then Christianity in Africa along the Atlantic coast within two forms. The largest by far uh, is the Kingdom of Congo or the Congolese Empire. Then you have um, what becomes Angola or Luanda, which is more of a colonial structure. There's a colonial structure in Santome. There's a colonial structure um, within Cape Verde and then other independent places like Wari and Benin. So it's a fuller story that's there. Um, but, the, but the one that stands out is the Kingdom of Congo or the Congolese Empire because it is independent and it has all the structures that one would find within a Christian society. Mm -hmm. And you talked about they, them building schools and how, how was that influential in, in their community? But one of the things, as you would know, is that therefore literacy um, is emerging. And once you introduce literacy, uh, therefore parents can teach children. Um, so e even if the school system collapses, literacy, literacy doesn't have to disappear because children can teach children, parents can teach children, grandparents can teach anyone who's literate can teach others. And, and as we know from periods afterwards, all you need is one literate person and they can teach 20 people in one class and you've already expanded it. Um, the second thing is that literacy also was connected with books within the Kingdom of Congo. So, so because our mind is often shaped by modern racism, we can't imagine libraries being within the Congo in the 16th century. Because we have this, this mind that African, you know, is, is hunters and gatherers or, or Africans are um, um, living in jungles. And, and some Africans do. Um, but we totally miss um, places like Benin and Wari uh, and Congo um, that have a different kind of level of development. Um, and therefore then um, that, that, that shapes that. Um, and, and, and the consequences would be, that would mean then that among the Africans that are enslaved, a group of them, I don't know, 5%, 10% um, were probably Christian. Another group of them were familiar with Christianity. And then within that group, some were literate already before they come to the Americas. That's that's really good to know uh, because there's a narrative that says no Christians that came over on this. I mean, there were no Christians that came over on the slave trade. Um, how how do we um, what what evidence do we have to support their books um, that people could could read to to source that? Yes. So so there, there's um, a, a group of scholars. One is a person by the name of Jason Young who's written on this. Um, Linda Thornton, um, I'm sorry, Linda Hayward has written on this. Um, John Thornton um, is, is a famous scholar who's written a lot on it going back to the 1980s. Um, so yes, yeah, so there, there's a number of, of materials that are out now. Um, what the materials have not pushed as much yet um, is this uh, impact that um, these Congolese uh, Christians had on the shaping of what becomes African-American Christianity. Um, Jason Young, for instance, has talked some about that. Um, there's also a discussion um, by uh, a Dutch scholar um, by the name of Joran de Wolf, uh, who uh, teaches at the University of California in Berkeley. Uh, he's talked about that, but 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 it has not received um, wide um, a recognition, even among African American scholars. Mm, wow. um, pr 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 probably another text that one could also look at is by Sylvester Johnson, um, who talks about the origins of African American religion. And, and frames it going back to the 16th century. So therefore he's taking this broad picture um, like, like I'm describing. He would be another person. 
that's that's extremely helpful. When we get to uh, America, how do we see um, conversion happening amongst the slaves? Well, one thing is that um, there's more people who have written upon uh, Congolese impact on Christianity within Brazil, for instance. Um, so, so there's a lot of writing on that, and 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 that that, that discussion has gone back again over uh, 30 years. Um, within North America. Um, the story is there, but it hasn't been developed as well. Um, but the places that one, one, where one would look um, would be um, Dutch, um, uh, the Dutch colony, which becomes New York. Um, we now call it New York City, but it was called New Amsterdam then. Um, this is what we call New York City. Um, you could also look in Virginia. There's some people now looking within that Jamestown area and recognizing the presence of what sometimes called Congolese or Angolans. Um, the, the Congolese often is the larger rubric. Um, then in low country, South Carolina, um, down there near the coast, uh, Goose Creek going towards Charleston. Um, in Florida, um, while Florida is a Spanish colony, especially around St. Augustine, and then um, within New Orleans. And, and one sees in those, those areas, this presence of people who are sometimes called Angolans, sometimes called uh, Congolese. Um, and therefore, one begins to unpack that. And, and I'm speaking of as early um, as 1619. So this, this is the beginning of what will become the United States, that one sees the presence um, of these Congolese uh, or Angolans, as they're sometimes called. And, and therefore, um, one also sees um, that a number of them are already Christian. Um, and, and that um, they are um, being recognized as being Christian uh, by um, the whites who are dominating the society at that time. Mm -hmm. Did they have a critique on how the or the white uh, people in that time uh, practice Christianity? Um, there, there could be um, what, what you could call a, a subtle critique. So, for instance, um, in New York, um, or what, what becomes New York, um, th these Africans were brought over technically as indentured servants, so that just like um, what will happen in Virginia. And so there, there's a time period that they're supposed to serve. And after that time period, um, they were supposed to um, be free or manumitted, uh, the language uh, sometimes of the time. Um, and uh, one of the things that you see is that they will uh, go to the courts. They will go through the legal system um, fighting for their rights. So one could assume then that um, if a Christianity that taught them to be submissive, um, the slaves obey your master kind of language, even though they're technically not slaves, um, that uh, white people should be in charge, sort of a, a early form of a, a modern racism, but not fully blown, um, they're already challenging that. They're willing to go to court. They're willing to go to bat. Uh, and they win. Uh, and they become free. Um, some of them become landholders. Um, they ask for their children to be baptized. They serve as godparents for uh, children of other people who are being baptized. They also have their weddings held um, within the, the Dutch Reformed Church uh, at that time, uh, as well as um, have their funerals being held there. Mm -hmm. So you're speaking of, uh, when you talk, when you say indentured servants, you're talking about um, kind of two different, two different groups of people that came over, correct? Yes. Yeah. So, so, okay. so I th most scholars 
um, notice that the material leads us to, to read that until about 1660, I think is the time, um, the Africans that are coming over are indentured servants. They, they, are, they are designated to serve a certain amount of time, often I think seven years, but there's a period of time, and then they are to be freed. Um, just like the Europeans that would come over from Ireland, um, they would serve for a certain period of time. Um, we move to uh, in, uh, um, indenture, sorry, we move to um, a perpetual uh, servitude or, or um, chattel slavery after 1660 or so. Um, and therefore then um, you no longer can be manumitted, you're a slave for life. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's a shift um, that occurs. But prior to then it wasn't that. So they're, they're able to take advantage of that uh, being indentured servants, even when the people who they quote work for, um, obviously forced, um, they work for, do not want to free them after seven years. And that's why they have to go to court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so were, was it those who came over as indentured servants that that uh, were probably already Christian, were they those who evangelized to the those who came over after when the, when it was chattel slavery. Okay, so 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 here's a way of, of telling the story. So that in the um, 1600s, um, within places like um, um, what becomes New York, uh, Boston, even Virginia, um, maybe even a place that like the, the Charleston area of South Carolina, um, you already have by that period second and third. Um, generations of Christians. Um, a group of them can read, um, especially in New York. Um, as I mentioned before, um, they are getting married, buried, having their children baptized um, within the church. And so, so they, they set up the ground. Um, but by some statistics, until you get to 1740, the majority of enslaved Africans um, will be from the Congo Angola area. So they're already setting um, the, the context that's there. They're already Christian. Um, and so, so when, when um, people from West Africa become a larger percentage of the numbers, um, these people have already in a sense created a template and they already understand the faith and they can already communicate the faith and they can differentiate between how they understand Christianity from what they received from Africa, maybe it's been sort of slightly changed from Africa, and what they hear from a preacher on a plantation who's been authorized uh, by the slaveholder. Um, and then there's a scholar by the name of Alf Floyd Butler, and he has this book up, again, over 30 years old now, called The Africanization of Christianity. And in this wonderful text, small text, but wonderful text, he has a section in there where he talks about the fact that the first mass conversion of Africans in North America occurs in low country, South Carolina. And that's the place where you have these Angolans or Angolans and Congolese Christians already. Um, there's writing already that some of them are literate. Um, uh, they, they, they must convert from Catholicism to Protestantism. And in that conversion, they also understand um, that uh, they, they should resist slavery. So there's a group of them that will be part of uh, fugitive slaves. Um, they, they, they will escape to Florida. Um, and there's another group, um, sometimes some among the same people, uh, who will be part of the, what's called the Stono Rebellion. 
um, which is in the 1730s. And so these people understanding of the faith is not that Christianity has them being uh, submissive and pacifies them to the faith and, and has them accept the cruelty of slavery or even slavery, period. Um, they reject it. Um, and so they're engaged in a Stonewall Rebellion. Um, and some of the writings that came out, uh, people, uh, the, uh, lawyers who are studying the case, they said that some of these people in the Stonewall Rebellion thought that the Spanish who were Catholic were going to come to the port of Charleston and have ships waiting for them to take them to Florida. And so therefore, they saw that their Catholic brothers and sisters, in this case, Catholic brothers, were going to launch, uh, help them in, in, in their overthrowing slavery um, and escaping slavery. So therefore, Christianity and slavery, Christianity being a religion um, that uh, um, is cultivating and shaping slaves to be uh, or enslaved Africans to be submissive and et cetera, these people do not understand the faith that way. They are willing to run away. They're willing to rebel. Um, they're willing to fight the system and still recognize themselves as being Christian um, because they don't see the contradiction between Christianity and liberation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's that element that, that, that I think we need to explore. And so um, as the number of Congolese Angolans go down, in a sense, that um, minority community of Christians are still there. And they're the ones then can help in this negotiation as more people um, from West Africa consider Christianity. It is probably these people on the plantation, those that they live with, that are explaining, interpreting, differentiating the understanding of the faith um, in places that they exist. And so therefore, especially in Virginia, low country, South Carolina, New York and Boston, um, they're playing a role. I'm not sure what I can say about um, someone in Pennsylvania or someone in places where there possibly was not this Congolese Angolan presence, but in places that, that, that there was a presence, it would be there. And, and since the first mass migration of enslaved Africans to Protestantism occurs in a place that they exist, I think that's something we need to take seriously. The second largest place, of course, that Africans are is in the Chesapeake um, Virginia area, which is now sort of Virginia, Maryland area, and Congolese and Angolans are also present there. Mm -hmm. That is, is extremely helpful um, because there's so many uh, things going around. There's a meme by Chris Rock who said basically it's suggesting that if you're a Christian and you're and you're black, you, you it's because you don't know history, um, and what you articulated is 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 history, um, and so we kind of have a one dimensional view of what um, Christianity and slavery look like in America. And you're kind of shedding light to help many people that are, are wrestling with this con um, with this concept. Um, now I've met young people and older people who are really wrestling with walking away from the faith because of our current um, cultural context and their issues with even white evangelicalism and so they're thinking through what does it mean to be a Christian and Black? And so this history, I think, is really helpful for those who are wrestling with it. One of the things they should realize that if their ancestors refused to let Europeans define for them um, what Christianity was, why should they? Matter of fact, if they're doing that, what is that saying about them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're going to let them get in your head and then, and then define for you what Christianity is, as opposed to being like your ancestors, helping read the Bible yourself, because again, these Congolese are literate, helping understand the faith yourself, 
helping um, um, have your experience with God yourself, um, helping create your own institutions. If you're not willing to do that, um, it sounds like you're not even building upon your ancestors. You're going back to something that I'm not even sure what to describe when you let white people tell you what the faith is, when you also have enough Africans that have explained what the faith is. And clearly the faith is not merely um, racial, but when the faith gets distorted and corrupted by uh, modern racism and then by this racism um, in this postmodern era, um, we need to be very, very careful because if not, we're letting them dictate. And if we let them dictate what the Christian faith is, will we let them dictate what it means to be human? And therefore we will deny our own humanity in order to follow what they're saying? I think it's a dangerous road to go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, even um, to, to, to your point, I, the, uh, a couple weeks ago, the African, I mean, not the African, the Bible Museum uh, released an artifact of a, a, a slave Bible that they were giving away that took out the passages for freedom. So it even further goes to your point. They must have had some um, inclination or knew that the slaves, when they were reading the Bible, the whole thing that they were coming up, they understood that they needed to uh, rise up against the injustices. So they made an edited version for them um, so they could kind of stop the movements that were going on. I, I think you're right. And, and again, um, African-Americans, um, instead of walking away from something, they need to try, as you're saying, um, search the history. And in searching the history, in this case, it, it didn't have to be so. The story could have been correct that the only Africans in North America that understood Christianity or were introduced to Christianity was introduced to it by the um, slaveholders. That could have been the story, but it is not. And since it is not the story, then there is, it, it, it's, it's um, key for us to begin to tell the story. Um, and then we need to go back and study. I'm, I'm, I'm proposing scholarship um, that has not become uh, commonly accepted even among African-American religious scholars. I'm not talking about people in African-American studies. I'm not even sure how aware uh, they are of some of this. Um, they, they clearly know, a, a number of them clearly know the Kingdom of Congo exists, but the link between the Kingdom of Congo and Golans, and then these others that I described, in Wari, Benin, Cape Verde, Santome, uh, the fact that uh, some of them are part of this enslaved population, the presence and role that they had in the, 16th, uh, sorry, in the 17th century and 18th century is an understudied, underexplored topic. I wish someone um, could give some millions towards a study so that we can learn more and, and understand more. And maybe if we do, it can get on a popular level so that people you know, won't say things out of ignorance, but they'll say things that are based uh, on a careful uh, study you know, of history. That's awesome. Is there any more resources that you would recommend to to our audience um, that you haven't already mentioned on this topic? Well, dealing with um, um, Congo in the Congo, um, there, there's a wonderful text um, by Cecile Fromont. It's called The Art of Conversion. And it's both an art book and a, a narrative that's there that's describing um, how Congolese Christianity um, was lived out looking at, at art form. There, there's some uh, paintings, um, drawings that were done, especially, I believe, in the 17th century um, that she uses the basis for a discussion. And it just gives some visuals to what we're describing. Um, so, so I think that's another text that I would say. Um, but lastly, um, I think that um, what you're doing is very, very important. Um, what, what Jude 3 uh, uh, Project is doing is very critical um, because we need to find a way to reach people in the pews in addition to reaching people in seminary. Um, and, and we haven't found a good way of doing that yet. 
Um, and unless you have a celebrity who can be able to broadcast it, um, we have to then work person by person, individual by individual, congregation by congregation. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so, so true. It's so critical. I'm praying that we could get those millions to do uh, this study because I think it would really be beneficial to um, the generations, uh, the every generation, whether baby boomer, millennial or Gen Z. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. How can people get in contact with you? Um, it's best to contact me at the seminary. And so my uh, email address is ddaniels at mccormick.edu. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. This has been another rich conversation, and I'm so glad that you agreed to uh, take time with us again. Well, again, I'm excited about what you're doing and, and the Jew3 project, and I'm excited about the opportunity to be able to share um, some of the things that, that I've been teaching and working on uh, and, and hope that this conversation can be expanded. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.